They relieved the palms of their branches as the people's palms grasped and then brandished those leafy emblems of both festival and rebellion. These were a people who felt as though they had already spent their second, third, and last chances on zealots, men like Barabbas and that now famous Maccabean. But this Jesus, this new champion, was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey as Zechariah had envisioned him. This king was coming to daughter Zion to take the wicked Roman chariots away from Ephraim. Surely this Jesus was the one to bring God's people salvation. Surely he was the one pictured all across the prophet's hopeful panorama. So they shouted, save us please. They cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. And this Jesus would answer yes to their cry of save us, save us, but not in the way they expected, not by the violent overthrow predicted by their palmy political propaganda. For the humility of that donkey was nothing compared to the way he would answer their shouts of Hosanna. For the path on which he rode took him not to a throne, but to a court, not to a place fit for a heavenly king, but to the feet of an earthly lord. It was there, before another crowd, in the hands of Pilate, whom God endowed with the power to answer the shouts rising loud, demanding crucifixion for this man who was so recently avowed as Hosanna by those who had laid down a pathway of both palm branch and personal shroud. It was there that he would show how he would answer both crowds both the Hosanna save us cry and the incessant crucify. For what was missed by each tribe, by those who cried out their Hosanna boast and those who cried that this man should be nailed upon two posts, is that Jesus would say no to neither request. Instead, he would say yes to both. In fact, he would accomplish salvation by such infliction. He would be Hosanna by undergoing crucifixion. He would say yes to cries of love and yes to cries of hate. And for us, it is good news that he answered this way. For we too cry Hosanna. We too need to be saved. But we also cry crucify him. We also are filled with hate. We need to be rescued from our evil, but when goodness comes to us, we take what is good and by our evil, hang it on a cross. But this is how he saves us. This is how he loves us. He answered our cry of need and our cry of hate with one final yes poured out as he cried so that the sin that put him on the cross he paid for as he died and the salvation for which we asked by his yes he supplied. So come lay down your branches and come lift up your palms for the king of our salvation said yes to the night of death so that he could raise the light of dawn.
Will you stand with me to pray? Lord Jesus, as we stand here this morning, we want to honor and praise your name for your obedience to the cross that we will reflect upon this week. From the hosannas that declared your entrance into Jerusalem, each and every day of the Passion Week, you knew where you were headed. And you were headed to obedience to the Father's will on a cruel cross because of love for us. Love not only for the people at that time that you physically looked into the eyes of, but love for people that are standing here today, us. It was because of your great love that you laid down your life. Lord, you said yes to the Hosannas by saying yes to the crucifixion. And we ask here this morning, Lord, as we endear ourselves to your scriptures and the story of that week, that you would dig out our ears to hear clearly from your Holy Spirit. Each of us are walking different roads of life currently. Some of us are in a good season. Some of us are in a challenging season. Some of us are on a spiritual high of what's happening in our life, and others of us are in a pit, maybe even a pit of sin this morning. Challenges on different fronts, relationships that are not as whole as we'd hoped, dreams and aspirations that seem to be broken. Lord, we are mindful of even the events of this last week nationally and what happened on Monday of last week in a church environment, in a church school where lives were taken by a person who was broken. Lord, may we never neglect the reality that each and every Sunday as we gather, you want to minister into our brokenness and that each and every Sunday that we gather, we do not know what the week ahead holds. And so we stand in honor and in worship of you. And we ask with open hearts that you would speak through your word and that your will would be done. In your name, God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So Passion Week does begin with Palm Sunday. I remember when I first came to this church, it was first Palm Sunday and I was, it's almost 10 years ago now, that's wild for me to believe, I moved here from Indiana, and uh it was the first time I could go out and get a live palm branch and cut it off and use it for Palm Sunday. We now have six beautiful date palms in our backyard, and I thought to myself, maybe I should go cut down a palm and bring it in today. 
But I remember in that service, I took the palm branch and I just waved it back and forth in celebration. And I was thinking, Lord Jesus, how do I get to a place where there's palm trees? My wife and I sometimes still say we wake up and we see palm trees and we're going like, are we on vacation or what? That's just how we thought of it. But palm branches were a part of that day of Christ and they did lay down the palm branches. And it's real easy for us to, to bounce through Palm Sunday, I think, and to move into uh, the course of Passion Week and look forward to Easter. Uh, I have that temptation. We have been in a series uh, out of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount called The Good Life. And I'm mindful that I would like to finish that out by the 16th. And I'm like, how do I keep just sort of knocking down some of those verses and let's get through it and what's the next verses for us to use on Palm Sunday. But yesterday I sort of had a check in my spirit. We may get to those verses here today. But the check in the spirit that I had was let's slow down and let's endear ourselves to the story of that Palm Sunday and what was happening in the hearts and lives of not just the followers but in the heart and life of Jesus. Because what we steward from one generation to the next isn't a bunch of how-to principles. We really steward story. And the gospel is a story that's stewarded through all generations. And we pass that on. And it's out of story that we also are enlightened for the things that we need to do. And so I want to encourage you to turn to the story of Palm Sunday and the beginning of Passion Week, as we look at what transpired on that Sunday, but also what happened shortly before it that brought about some of the intensity of it. So the words aren't going to be on your screen. You're going to have to take your Bibles if you have it, or look on your electronic device. But I'm actually going to have us go to the book of John. And in the book of John, Turn with me, if you will, to chapter 12. So in the book of John, chapter 12, we have the story of Palm Sunday as recorded by the gospel writer, John. And he describes Jesus as king. Now, if you're looking at John chapter 12, you need to know what came before John chapter 12. What came before John 12 is... John 11. And John 11 refers to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I had the opportunity this week to uh, officiate at a memorial service uh, for someone's father uh, who passed away, was connected with our church. And as I stood there before this mixed group of people with different faith backgrounds or maybe no faith background at all, I was reminded of the uh, immense privilege it is to steward the story of hope when we see a loved one pass away. And even if there's some uncertainty that's involved in that, we can look to the scripture and find our hope through Jesus Christ. And so I reference the story of Lazarus. Because when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, he looked at Martha, Lazarus' sister, and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And then he looked directly into her eyes and asked a pretty straight-on question. Same question would come to you and I this morning. Do you believe? 
Well, you need to know what happened with this raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had been pretty much a, a, a inconspicuous, oh yes, there's this spiritual leader up in the Sea of Galilee, but when he came down towards Jerusalem, and where Lazarus lived was outside Jerusalem a little ways, Jesus rocked Jerusalem because news began to spread that there was one who came who raised somebody from the dead. Now, if one of you went out and raised somebody from the dead in the power of God this week, news would probably spread around this church. Did you know so-and-so, right? Well, this was all a part of his plan. Becoming more known, speaking in to the situation at hand, the brokenness of life, and bringing hope about the resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead was a foreshadowing, really, of Christ himself, raising himself from the dead. But he got a name. He got a name when that happened. Any of you watched the NCAA tourney yesterday? San Diego State, last second shot. They went from losing the game, one point behind, to winning the game, one point ahead. And I thought to myself, that young man, though I didn't get his name, I should have got his name. His life is forever changed because of that shot that he made to put San Diego State in the NCAA final game uh, tomorrow night. Well, things happen in our life. Sometimes things happen that give us a bad name. Sometimes a good name. Wow, did you know that so-and-so did that? Well, Jesus became this no-name Messiah to one who was a threat to the people in Jerusalem. And who was he a threat to? He was a threat to the religious establishment. And so this is what happened in John chapter 11. It was not just the raising of Lazarus from the dead, but the coming to age, if you will, even though it was one week away from the crucifixion and Easter, when his name really got spread around. And so with that, will you join me in chapter 12 of John? Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So he'd come back and hanging with Lazarus from when he'd raised him prior. You ever wonder, sometimes you just have to pause with Scripture and look there and go, I wonder what that was like or what was going on there. Here was Lazarus alive, just lounging around the dinner table. What did Jesus say to him? Hey, man, how you feeling? That was quite a trip you did, right? Four days in the grave? I don't know what they spoke about. But here he is in the same household of his friends, Lazarus being raised from the dead. Have a dinner. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Remember that story? It happened right here in preparation for what was going to happen in Passion Week. But one of his disciples, oh, here he is, Judas Iscariot who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. <laughs> you want to think, wow, he's such a frugal guy. He's so conscientious of 
how money is spent or something, right? No, not at all. What does it say? Verse 6, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Jesus and the disciples, as they would travel, he was, you know, sort of the cash app person. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. What? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Did Jesus know what was going to transpire that week? You bet he did. God had revealed it to him. Didn't make it any easier for him. Verse 9, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So this is this whole notoriety thing sort of starting to spark and speak up, and who is this? And so crowds were coming, and then also the people that were the religious higher-ups, right? So the chief priests made plans then to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. I don't know about you, but there is a lot of political, religious, and cultural tension in that verse. Do not just assume, oh, it was all... There was a lot of upheaval. Upheaval amongst the people that were longing and looking for a Messiah. And here's this Jesus who came back into town in preparation. They didn't know what it was for, but he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. We want to see this Jesus, this miracle-working Messiah, and we want to see Lazarus who was raised from the dead. There was immense curiosity and intensity concerning the hope for a Messiah, somebody who would change the situation that they were in culturally as a people, as a downtrodden people. But the religious leaders, who you would think would be on the side of the Messiah coming, were not interested in that hope. They were interested in keeping the status quo in the religious system so that they could have their prominent positions and their wealth and other things. No one was supposed to come and disrupt the temple system and all that went on, chief priest and on down. And so they were bothered by this news. Who is this person that would come and uh, bring uh, upheaval to our culture? And, and who's to know then if, they, if this Messiah comes and brings upheaval to our culture? We've made peace with the Roman government who was in charge of Jerusalem. And they're going to hear about us and these people going to this Messiah. And this Messiah is going to be raising up. And we just need to hush this down. Nobody cause any problems. No political waves, please. Just stay the course. Stay the course. How do we deal with this situation? Well, we got to deal something with it. Politically, we just need to take him out, I guess. Right? And we need to take Lazarus out too. Because he'll tell people about what happened. And so that's why you have that pungent verse, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him, but the chief priest had made plans to also kill Lazarus. Verse 12. The next day, Palm Sunday, the great crowd that had come for the festival, the festival in Jerusalem, heard that Jesus was on his way now to Jerusalem. He's coming, he's coming. 
This Messiah is coming who raised people from the dead. They took palm branches, verse 13, and waved them and they went out to meet him. And they shouted, Hosanna, 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 blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. This declaration of proclaiming him as king was significant. The Messiah they had hoped would be an earthly king, one who would establish his kingship like David was king over Israel in the Golden Ages, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. The prophesied Messiah was going to make all things right and establish his throne. This is the new hope. And when they went out to greet him, when they threw down the palm branches, when they declared the hosannas as surely as we declared today in worship his praise, they were acknowledging that he was royalty, that he was going to be their king. You see, in those days, when a king entered into a land or a city, there would be a whole entourage that didn't necessarily follow him. There probably was an entourage there. But it was the people that would gather that would go before him. So if you had a king who came back with the spoils of war, then they would bring out those spoils and the people from the city would run out and they would meet the king that was coming and prepare the way. Prepare the way of the Lord, we sang, right? Would prepare the way for the entrance of the king, the conqueror. The warrior and this warrior would be riding a measly little donkey. No. What would the king be riding? A war horse, right? But it says next, in fulfillment of the prophecy, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. And this was written in Zechariah, 450, 500 years before Jesus and you can find it there in Zechariah. We won't go there today. But do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. The interesting thing about the donkey, the colt, and it's recorded in Luke that Jesus sent, we don't know what disciples, but he sent his disciples on ahead into Jerusalem, and he said, you're going to find uh, um, a colt, and uh, I want you to bring it. Never been ridden on before. I, I'm not sure how he got permission, but he said, whenever the owner asked, just say, the Lord has need of him. That all transpired and fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. And here comes the lowly little donkey, the, the colt that had never been ridden on. Jesus didn't choose a war horse. He chose a donkey in fulfillment of Scripture for one reason. The second thing was in humility. Probably if he would have ridden in on the horse, that would have really catapulted the Romans into some type of fear of who he was and what was happening. But how can you be fearful of someone that they think is their king coming in on a donkey? There probably were some giggles and laughs going on, don't you think? 
It's interesting, though, and as we sing here on Palm Sunday, the declaration of the kingship of Jesus in preparation for this week. We are to be people that go before the Lord today and proclaim that for others. That's why I say just pray for three people, listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, take time, opportunity to be able to discern who God, because you are God's instrument to be able to prepare the way of the Lord by shouting and declaring his worth and his value and his salvation in your own life as well as what is possible for their life. And we will actually do this until the day that Jesus Christ comes back. You know, there's a lot of discussion about prophecy and what means what, about the future and when Jesus comes back, those kinds of things. I don't mean to jump there and do a little bit of cul-de-sac, but I will. Uh, the rapture, as they refer to it in Scripture, uh, is referred to in Thessalonians. For all creation is waiting patiently and hopefully for that future day when God will resurrect his children. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a mighty shout and with the soul-stirring cry of the archangel and the great trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first to meet the Lord. Then we who are still alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we reign with him forever. That description may very well refer to a rapture. But it also has prominent meaning as it relates to introducing and going before a king coming into a city. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to those Christians who were in Thessalonica at that time, heads up, just want you to know this, that don't worry about those people who have died and what's going to happen to them because at the end there's going to be a resurrection of all those who are believers in Christ. Yes, absent from the body, present with the Lord, what type of uh, presence that is in paradise, as Jesus said to the thief on the cross, uh, you can be assured of that. But there is coming a physical resurrection of the bodies, and, and, and Paul was teaching that at Thessalonians, but he was also teaching in this that there was going to be this resurrection of people. There was going to be those who have died and those who are still alive with Christ, because when Jesus comes back the second time, he ain't coming on, on no donkey. He is going to come on a what? What's Revelation say? A white horse, a stallion. And those of us who are followers of him, we will go out. It will be Palm Sunday point two, bigger than you ever thought. And Palm Sunday point two is we're there, we're captured on that day, we're raised, people together, we are declaring Prepare the way the Lord is here for the second coming, right? That Jesus will now establish his earthly throne, his earthly reign upon all people. That's what they thought on the Palm Sunday point one. That's what he said, no. You see, Jesus came the first time to establish his kingship, his reign in our hearts and lives, that we would choose to follow him. No coercion. But this passage was confusing to a lot of people because their anticipated king was that which we will experience at the second coming and going out and laying down all the, all the spoils and all that King Jesus has done and he will establish his reign forever. But his reign he was establishing here was in the hearts and the lives of people, including your heart and my life. And he comes humbly to you and I Jesus does not coerce you. If you are not a believer here this morning, 
Jesus, I don't like the word gentleman, but it, it, it's sort of that kind of thing that he comes with a strong spirit, but he's not manipulative. And he wants you to be a follower of him. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, Oh no. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now that's a pretty bold statement. Don't you think? The whole world? Really? Well, there was, must have been some significant mass of people. And these Pharisees who had control over the Jewish people spiritually were worried about losing their control, worried about what a Messiah would do to disrupt the Romans and their peaceful state that they'd found themselves into. And they were not dialed in to that which the commoner was. They were not dialed into hope for oppression and liberation. They were not dialed in to truly seeking the Messiah. So verse 20, we find this in John 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. So a Greek or a Gentile is anybody that's not a Jewish person. So there's a lot of people in town in Jerusalem because of the festivals and the event of Passover. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Hello? We're just passing through. We're some travelers. You know, we're from up northwest and just coming down through. Could, could, could we see this Jesus? Philip went to tell Andrew. <laughs> you got to look at the chain here. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Word started. And what's Jesus going to do? Actually, I don't even know if these Greek people ever got their answer or got to see Jesus. But we find this in verse 23. Jesus replied. I mean, he's... he's <laughs> He's laser focused, man. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. I say, there's just some Greek people that wanted to talk to you. You went off on all this spiritual stuff? Well, no, the spiritual stuff is the true kingdom stuff. It's the true life stuff. And Jesus is saying that unless there is death, there will not be life in the multiplication of beauty he was about to walk that road himself, being obedient to death on a cross, taking our sins on the cross so that all might be saved. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, Jesus said, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify 
your name. Do you climb into the passion of Christ in these moments? See, I think that's one of the important things for us to do in Passion Week is just not to blow through from one Sunday to another Sunday, what's coming after that, spring break, what's the next thing on our schedule, but that you and I pause and we endear ourselves not just to the story, but the person that the story is about, which is your Savior and your Lord. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, this Jesus is your Savior and wants to be your Lord. And we endear ourselves to the place that he found him. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of leaders I become disappointed in the older I grow. Whether they're leaders in the marketplace, leaders in government, even leaders in churches. For all I know, you could be disappointed with me as a leader. But can we see past all that and see that the one that we worship and follow is the creator and the savior of the world and endear ourselves to the personhood of Jesus Christ and climb into that love that he had for us to be obedient as he was. He could have called down 10,000 angels from that cross, but he chose not. And he chose not on this Palm Sunday to take on all the accolades, to do away with the Pharisees, take over the Romans. He knew that it was through death and him dying and then being raised to life that new life could come into this broken world in which you and I live. He said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Ah, oh, capture the beauty of God the Father, God the Son, an intimate conversation. And here Jesus is saying, I'm going to be obedient for the sake of life for other people. And he says, Father, I want you to be glorified. Glorify your name. And the God, the creator, Father of the heavens, he speaks from the heavens and he voices back to Jesus in that moment. They thought it was thunder. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again and again and again and again. And every Sunday, if you ever come bored for worship, you remember this passage because God is waiting for us to glorify his name again and again and again. When you get up and you're hesitant to do devotions or put your head down at night, hesitant to pray because you're so tired, glorify the name of the Lord Jesus. Glorify God the Father in heaven again and again and again. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Because Jesus always heard the voice of the Father now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, referring to the cross, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They're confused. How would a Messiah die? Well, the Messiah doesn't die. He's going to be our king forever. 
Who is the Son of Man? Someone else. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Take those words, use them in your life group this week. What does that mean? What does it mean, the light and his time? I believe that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts and lives and the light comes through Jesus Christ who was lifted up on that cross. And if the Lord God Almighty is speaking to your soul even here this morning concerning where your relation is or is not at with God, then be obedient to that light to walk into the light because that light of the Holy Spirit is coming to enlighten your life, not to bring darkness. Let's finish out the chapter. I told myself I'd just take this chapter today. Verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many miracles in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of the prophet Isaiah. Lord, you have, who has believed our message, Isaiah said, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus, his glory, and spoke about him. Verse 42, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. You might want to underline verse 43, because that still goes on today, doesn't it? Have you found yourself in that camp? I'm sort of a believer, but I don't want to say anything because I don't want to be shunned, or I don't want to be labeled, or I don't want to be you know, cast aside for a job promotion or something else. All kinds of crazy things go through our head when it becomes evident that we need to publicly declare our faith. The whole idea of us being baptized, if you've not been baptized, you know, it was a chain in my life when I had not made a public profession of my faith. I made a commitment to the Lord in the privacy of a bedroom and a fuller decision when I was in the large uh, auditorium once, and, and I had never publicly declared my faith. And I said, Lord, I got to make that public declaration because I do not want to hide that I'm a follower of yours. There's some chains that break off of you when you make a public declaration of faith. But here it is. He knew the people at that time. Some were believing, but they were fearful of the Pharisees and the world around them. They loved human praise more than the praise from God. Just do it. Take the obedient step. Acknowledge that Jesus is your Savior and the Lord of your life. Whether it's in a conversation with someone that you don't know what their response will be, whether it's at a baptism or whether it's in some other kind of environment where you're going to need to stick up for the things of the Lord and a biblical moral ethic, whatever it may be. Take the initiative. Be a strong person. The Lord is with you. Verse 44, then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. 
The one who looks at me is seeing the man, the one who sent me. That's a declaration, by the way, of Jesus' deity. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Was Jesus just a nice prophet, a good teacher? No, Jesus was God himself, and he began to declare that. And here's one of those declarations. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me, because I and the Father are one. So the whole thing, and there's some cults that deny the uh, deity of Jesus Christ, right? Other religions, they, they think that's blasphemous that we would believe in the Trinity. Scripture teaches God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one, operating in community together. And these three who are one is who God is in his essence. Can we understand that with our pea-sized brains? No, we really can't. But Scripture reveals it, and we believe it to be true. We will more fully know when we understand the realm of spirit beings of which God is foremostly spirit. Verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Praise God, praise God. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. John chapter 12. Endear yourself to the story this week. You can move into John 13. But then there's this beautiful discourse Jesus has, John 14 through 16. I was blessed in my earlier years when I was able to do so quickly to have had that memorized. And it's part of who my, my, my soul is and my heart. When Jesus teaches his disciples who were fearing. And then John 17 John 17 has to do with the high priestly prayer of Jesus, praying not only for his disciples then, but praying for you and I, those of us who would come to believe him through his testimony. And then as you move into John 18 and the whole rest of the Passion Week and moving towards the cross and then ultimately for John 20, could I just ask you to do an assignment here? It'll enrich your life. I know you give an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Thank you. But give time to God this week and walk through the passion narrative. If not in the Gospel of John, then in one of the other Gospels. But spend time this week in preparation for Easter so we come in prepared to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord because of what he did. And this Jesus who we celebrate is our King of kings and he is our Lord of lords. He came on that day to shouts of hosannas. And people preparing the way of the Lord and laying things down. Here is our king. But then it had that difficult twist as the video showed. Wait a second. Others are saying crucify him later in the week. And it all gets combobbled. But in the midst of it, he was fulfilling the perfect father's will, the plan to bring salvation to humankind and the brokenness of our earth. And so this Passion Week isn't just about his love for you and I. It's his love for the world. He poured himself out so there could be change in our world, real change. 
not just trying to get the right candidate for the next election. And you and I, we live in a different realm if we're followers of Jesus because his kingdom is not a kingdom of this earth. It will be established on this earth, but his kingdom is of a spiritual realm. And when we sing hosannas to the king, we are saying that we are a part of that kingdom that he brought. And so with that, I'm going to pop through some verses that are back in Matthew, in that Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus began proclaiming the kingship and that people were to enter into the kingdom and what life in the kingdom would be like. When he was on that hill at the beginning part of his ministry, at the Sea of Galilee, the area that was his home turf before he ultimately then went to Jerusalem and died on the cross there and was raised from the grave. He was teaching the people on that hillside how blessed they were that they could enter into this kingdom, that they could follow his kingship. And it was a whole kingship of a different kind of realm than not just that of, of the, the difficult secular Greek um, Gentile world, but also a different kingdom than the religious trappings and all the churchiness that was going on. His kingdom is beautiful, filled with wonder and worship and eternal destiny. He continues on in Matthew 7, where we had left off last week, and he says this, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now normally this verse, do you know what this is taken towards? It's taken towards our prayer life. And it does apply to our prayer life. You know, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. But I believe the bigger part of this has to do with entering the kingdom of God and following his kingship. Take stock, enter in. Be persistent to know. What does Jesus say on the heels of this? He says, hey, you need to know this, that I love you. And this whole seeking and knocking and asking aspect to enter in and be a part and to serve me and to be able to, to see my will be done in the other people's lives, keep on praying, all that kind of thing. There's wonder and mystery to it, but it's because I love you. Which of you, if your son asked for bread, We'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. That's not the relationship we have with our kids. And that's not the relationship Jesus has with us as our king. He wants to give to us and to provide for us, to give us a hope for the future. If you then, though you are evil, human, broken, fallen, sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Oh, letting Jesus be the king of our life radically alters our relationship with God the Father. And we are called his children if we will but believe in him. The golden rule follows on that teaching in Matthew 7. So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. It's all about love and relationship. It's not about religion and do's and don'ts and the trappings 
of religiosity. He then says this, and we will end. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. The events of Monday, when this challenged young adult took firearms into that Presbyterian church and school, don't know what was in the manifesto. They haven't said what it is. But I tell you what, you can read between the lines in whatever manifesto that girl wrote in its brokenness in lostness, even though she went to that school when she was younger and probably heard the whole story about Palm Sunday like you just heard. It requires action to enter the kingdom of God. He will not violate your will. Have you entered through the gate? I want you to just contemplate with me for a while where you are at personally. And maybe it's not you personally, but maybe it's that person you're going to ask to come with you next week. We have a world out there that has this wide open door to all kinds of destruction. Jesus acknowledged it, but we have a narrow gate that is the pathway to life. And we need to tell people where that narrow gate is. It's through the kingship of Jesus. Scott McKnight wrote a book called The King Jesus Gospel. And he says this, to enter the narrow gate is to enter into a relationship with Jesus who really is king and Lord and who saves and rules. And the relationship to Jesus entails following him. The reason the gate is narrow into the kingship of Jesus and his kingdom is because it's about discipleship. You choosing to be a disciple of his and be a follower of his. And for a lot of us, and I struggled with it for many years, no, I've got a better plan than you, God. You need to lay that down if you want to come into the kingdom through the narrow gate. The world rushes through the wide gates. I want you to contemplate the hardness of walking through the narrow gate. Jesus, it says, if you went to John 10, he actually says that he is the gate. Enter in. This whole gate doorway thing reminds me of the Revelation 3.20 passage. It's familiar to us, a lot of us. But maybe it needs to hit home with you this morning or if you've not heard it. This is Jesus saying this. 
in the last book of the Bible, the book that talks about his second coming when he will be king and reign eternally. Jesus said, here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You will have that relationship. But it requires you to open the door of your heart. Seek. Knock. Ask him to be your Savior and your Lord. Let's not wait till Easter for the invitation. The invitation's here. Will you bow your head with me? Lord, with eyes closed across this room, as we've endeared ourselves to your story, your spirit here is speaking to the hearts and lives of people. And Lord, if there's a person here that needs to acknowledge you as the king, to open the door to their heart and let you come in, then I pray in obedience they would do that in this prayer I'm about to lead. Friends, in John 1, it says that if you believe in him, to many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. Belief is not about you cleaning up your act, getting things right, doing all the respectable things that you would think churchy people do. It's coming just as you are and saying, I need Jesus in my life. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed across this room today, is there anybody that would slip up their hand and say, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord this morning? And by you raising your hand, you're acknowledging that you want to open that door to your heart as he stands there and knocks. Today is the day of salvation for you. Let the King come into your life. Anyone across this room? Amen. Amen. Anyone else? If you raised your hand or even if you were hesitant to do so because, yeah, you worry about that whole praise of man versus praise of God thing, it's real. It's real for all of us. You too can pray with me this simple prayer because it's about the inward acknowledgement of Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Pray these words with me. In fact, I'm going to ask everybody just to pray these words out loud, almost as a reaffirmation of your desire to follow hard after Jesus, to enter through the narrow gate. So repeat with me, dear Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for coming to this earth, for being obedient to the Father, to taking my sins upon you, for dying on the cross, and I believe you were raised from the dead. I invite you to come into my life. I open the door. Establish your reign in my heart as my King and as my Lord and as my Savior forever.
Amen. For those of you who raised your hand or maybe you prayed in your heart, we would say it's okay to do this, to clap, to applaud, and say welcome to the kingdom of heaven. You sang when we started out. I want you to sing even better when we're going to head out. The ushers are going to come to receive the Lord's tithes and offering. If you made a spiritual commitment to follow Jesus Christ this morning, mark the back of your card. We want to follow up with you. I made a commitment to follow Jesus. If you have spiritual questions, and maybe you're not quite there yet, you mark that too. Or if you have another question, mark that. I want to follow up with you. We want to follow up with you as pastors and ministry leaders, maybe your peers. We want to be there for you on this journey. For it is a journey to enter in the kingdom of God. But as the ushers come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings, I'm going to invite you to stand to sing along with Angela and the team. Let's worship the Lord on this Palm Sunday as we leave. He shall...